Greetings and salutations. This is Life and Books and Everything. Welcome back. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and I am joined today with Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen, my good friends. Good to have you men back in studio warming up the electric guitar, the uh, the djembe. We're a very simple band here. And uh, I want to thank Crossway again, Gospel People, A Call for Evangelical Integrity by Michael Reeves uh, came out last month. I want to mention again this book. I don't know if we mentioned it before, but in a time where there's lots of conversation about evangelical and the term can be poorly defined and some people are ready to throw it overboard, uh, Michael Reeves argues for a global scriptural historical perspective and urges Christians to return to the root of that term, which is, of course, the evangel the gospel. And uh, I, I think many of our, most of our listeners would be familiar with Michael Reeves. And if you're not, you just can count on thoughtfulness, a real earnest, warm piety in what he writes. And so check out this book and grateful for Crossway sponsoring the program. And if you go to crossway.org slash plus, you can get 30% off you with your Crossway Plus account. So that's a good deal. All right. Uh, good to see you, brothers, again. Uh, when I was at T4G, and you guys were at T4G as well, I had a number of people come up and thank me for life and books and everything. So that was uh, gratifying. Although several people, in the midst of their general support and commendation, made a point to say, I fast forward all of the sports banter. I'm just not interested. I, I I just didn't know we were missing the mark so egregiously. So we won't say anything about, you know, the spring game for whatever college football team or the start of the WNBA season. But uh, perhaps just a little bit of life or family banter. Justin, what's what's going on in the... JT household as we come to the end of the school year, roll into spring. Any good updates for us? Yeah, let me just mention first the penalty that the NCAA issued on Scott Frost with the um, show cause. And um, yeah, go into great detail. Yeah, so first point is uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll pass. and welcome back, listeners. Yeah. Uh, no, the I think the most interesting thing for our family right now is that we have a, a daughter, our oldest daughter, graduating from high school. So I think she has two weeks left of school. So that's a, a milestone when you get to that point of your formal schooling being done. And our, our youngest will be entering kindergarten next year. So we have we don't quite have the de young spread, but uh, pretty close. So mm-hmm. that, that's major life events. Um, yeah, looking forward to summer, um, looking forward to a little bit of travel and vacation and being together as a family, especially thinking about the, the family unit, kind of, this is the, the last hurrah while being together with, with five kids. So, uh, got a couple surgeries planned for our kids, so that's oh, never fun, yeah. but, uh, so this will be a, a momentous year in the, the Taylor clan. Good. Yeah. Yeah. We also have a graduating senior, our oldest son, and uh, he's 
I think done pretty much. Now he's he did his AP tests and other exams, and now they have like two extra weeks of doing nothing or something. Uh, if you're from the school, I, I didn't say that. I'm sure they're working very hard. You need to talk to the head of that school, I think. Uh, <laughs> I know. Who, who's in charge of this school? And uh, he's, uh, you know, the, we won't do an episode on this, but the the process of applying to colleges and making college decisions seems a lot different. And I guess that's, I mean, it should be 25 years since we did it. But because they have computers now, Kevin? <laughs> well, it just seems so much more complicated. I don't know how you guys did it. I got all the mailers from people and, you know, you look at them and I kept a box of them and I wasn't going to go to 98% of them. And I picked five schools I wanted to visit. We visited them and I applied to a few of them and got in and then narrowed it down to two and then just told my parents, yeah, this is where I'm going. And I think, well, there's a lot, there's covid which has made visiting schools harder. It's also made a, a backlog that we found some of the schools were saying they had twice as many applicants as they've ever had before. But it's the haves and the haves not. I think some schools we're going to find smaller aren't going to make it. And then the ones that are maybe in a, like in the South, uh, some of these state schools are just applications are through the roof. And with Common App, you just you know put your thing on the computer, hit it, pay 40 bucks, send it off to the other schools. I mean, I think my son applied to like 13 schools or something. So uh, it was, we've, we've been in, in the thick of that and that's been stressful, but I think he knows where he's going. He's, uh, he's decided to go to NC State. So there you go. Uh, it's close by relatively a few hours and he's got a lot of friends there. He wants to study. You guys will be proud. He wants to study agriculture. You didn't grow that up on a farm. A, that is amazing. I know. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. So that's, he's got the farmers is from being born in Iowa, I think. And what but, does he want to do? You know, he wants to do the, the concentration on turf grass management. Wow. That is so cool. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> he can work on a ball field or a golf course or, or something. Do you know so, that Nebraska got a new turf this year? Yeah. Tell us about that. <laughs> Uh, it's green. this is a, this is a totally unpaid, unprompted, unsolicited <laughs> commercial, but you know, we went and looked at a bunch of Christian liberal arts schools and the ones that I wanted him to go look at. And he in, didn't end up picking that those, but we went to Hillsdale, we went to Grove city, we went to covenant and I didn't take him to visit Geneva college, but I was just there speaking and, uh, met with the president there. Anyways, for Christian parents out there, it's uh, I'm not an expert, but I, I really liked all those schools. I would have felt good about sending my son to any of those Christian liberal arts schools, and they're all quite different. But what they're what they're doing and, and where they're at, so take that as a free bit of commercial time from Kevin. Colin, what's going on in the Hanson household? Any more babies? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. Uh, so okay. we've uh, our our little William at ten months is the most pleasant young child um, we could ever. I thought have he was William for. the Conqueror. Yeah, well, he, uh, conquering through charm. Uh, so a, a conqueror oh, for the well. for the twenty first as opposed to the you know eleventh century. Um, <laughs> but for the new millennium, 
so that's that's delightful. And we're also living in the midst of what my wife would describe as Berenstein Bears too much baseball. Uh, so we love the Berenstein oh. Bears books around our house. And uh, our, my daughter will just bring a huge pile when I'm not reading the new Kevin DeYoung story Bible uh, right. to my kids. I'm, I'm reading them Berenstein Bears. Don't appreciate how the father comes across in Berenstein Bears for the record. Yeah. Do but, you remember uh, how to spell Berenstein? You know, that's oh one of the gosh. Mandela effect. That's true. That's true. I think I probably could if my life depended on it. But um, I mean, so we're, you know, we, we love going through those, love the little kind of helpful to reinforce certain values and uh, of too much TV or too much grumbling or, or too much uh, junk food. We're in the midst of too much baseball. I didn't quite understand what I was signing up for in first grade summer baseball until I realized that we had a baseball takes over your life. Five, at least five games a week. At least yeah. five nights a week. These are slow grade. moving games with a lot of, uh, <laughs> well, these are coach pitch at least. So, okay. So, so they're moving a little bit quicker, but yeah, every day. I mean, it's funny. I was, I was, um, uh, just corresponding with my sister-in-law in Detroit and they had my, my nephew had three baseball games on mother's day. And I thought, well, at least the good people of Birmingham, Alabama had the sensibility not to yeah. schedule any baseball. On mother's mother's day. Day. <laughs> yeah. So, we did. Uh, <laughs> we did baseball for a while and uh, I love baseball, but I can't say I'm sad that we moved on to other sports. It's they last a long time. Even, you know, you, you, you wait a long time for your kid to get up to bat there's a lot of, you know, Brian Regan in right field. Uh, Going to get snow cone. Going to get grape. <laughs> Basically, yeah, no, this is my most favorite grape. And cherry. Cherry, also my favorite. There's a lot of like spinning around, pick, putting grass in your hat. So hope maybe 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 your your kids are uh, Casey at the bat and are in the thick of it. So far, we're manning down right field. Yeah, um, well, there's a lot but, of pole hitters in Little League. Casey strike out? Well, yeah, but mighty, his reputation but he was, still was mighty. different. Yeah, yeah reputation preceded him. Yeah, was I the deserved, only person? I mean, you can't judge him by just one at bat. <laughs> by the only person who recited that, along with a lot of Shel Silverstein for oral interpretation in elementary school. No, or? no, you're not. Okay, no, you're very not. Good. That was a fun one to memorize. <laughs> okay, shout out to my grandmother. All right. Well, we've had 10 minutes of uh, hitting the 30-second fast-forward button, but <laughs> good to have you back. All right. So lots we could talk about, but I'm just going to throw it to you. We'll see where the conversation goes. I can di- direct us and put some guardrails on. But, of course, last week, the and it really is unprecedented, to use an overplayed word, but the, the Supreme Court leak of the – Roe opinion that Justice Alito has written and has uh, a 5-4 majority, and it's been confirmed that that's an authentic draft, not final, but authentic, and that that 5, uh, well, I should say 5-3, I don't think has it been clear what the Chief Justice is, is going to do. Uh, so, of course, it's not final until it's final, but uh, Justin, take us away. What, what thoughts on the Roe it maybe I mean we, there's lots of people who can do the political punditry, so we don't need to get deep into that aspect of it. But just on the prospect of Roe being overturned, on the conversation that happens among Christians around it, on what we should think about it, how are you processing all this? 
Yeah, I think the first thing to note is just going back to seeing it on my computer screen and, and reading that and almost feeling like uh, on April 1st when you see a prank and, you know, the best pranks are plausible pranks and, and reading through it and wondering, is this real? I mean, it just, I, we all knew that a decision would be coming one way or another, but to have no advanced warning and to start reading it, something that the three of us and so many others have longed to see the day when this uh, barbaric and unjust law is overturned or ruling. Uh, it, it was really just a, a strange sensation to be reading through these arguments. Like this is not just uh, the carrot that's always being dangled out in front of Christians and conservatives, but something that is now actually coming into reality. It's still a little bit difficult to process that this will be our new world post row and again we've we've been talking about it for decades and longing for it and praying for it so praise be to god uh, even though as you noted with your caveat kevin it's not 100 percent certain but i think it seems quite likely that this is the direction the court will go in um and i think it will just be such a, a relief for the country not that abortion will become illegal I mean, there are a lot of misunderstandings about what Roe is and what the implications will be for Roe. And I think that we all know what the implications are, that this kicks it back to the states. And therefore, uh, the, the local angle, thinking statewide and uh, more narrow than that, becomes more paramount for Christians in terms of their voting and their finances and their involvement and, and even their prayers. So... Um, I think that in some ways we've thought I can care about this issue and mainly think about it at the, the sort of national political level. But I think it's an encouragement for all of us as Christians just to be investing more locally. There's a wherever you live, probably unless you're in a very, very small rural area, there's a local pregnancy center that needs support. It needs volunteers. It needs encouragement and we want to provide an alternative for women. So it'll there's there'll be a lot of time to think through political implications and how Christians think about the politics of it. But uh, certainly, at the very least, this is a day for rejoicing mm -hmm. uh, to see something again so profoundly unjust uh, to get overruled and and not necessarily even to think about all the consequences of that politically, but just to celebrate that fact that something unjust is being now taken off of uh, the record book. Yeah, let's pray that it will be so. That's a good opening word. And I have a number of thoughts, and Colin does too. But before we kind of run down some of those, I just uh, it prompts a question. Uh, do you think, do either of you think that with this going to the States and roughly, it's not quite a third, a third, a third, but in basic parameters, like a third of the States already have things in place to protect uh the rights of the unborn and third to protect abortion access. And then a third or more are pretty open-ended. So as States sort this out, if Roe is overturned, do you envision any reconfiguring of where people live? I kind of think people will say that and, and economic factors will weigh, will loom larger like right now, we have a new development coming in behind our house, and 
at least the first half a dozen people that have moved in. We got two California plates. We got New York plates. But any thought that people are going to say, well, not even maybe that, well, I need to go someplace because I want an abortion, but just I don't want to be in one of these abortion restrictive states. And will red state, blue states become even redder and bluer? Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't quite thought about it that way, Kevin, but I've become a more um, a more thankful federalist, especially because of COVID. I think it's precisely the federalist structure of our of our government that allowed us to weather that storm easier than it might have been. Oh, otherwise. Can you imagine if it was all across all fifty states, and not to mention within the states? Mm-hmm. So really, yeah. so many of the decisions did not even come necessarily to the state level, but also to the, to the local, to yep. the counties. You know, the county was a major factor there. Our county health department, for example, was issuing a lot of directives based on on that situation. But then down to school boards and down to administrations there. Um, I mean, I am, and I've said this a million times before, I am an old school conservative. I am all about local government, local control. And so one of the things that we're going to see in this case is should this thing follow through, things are going to be across, they are going to be wildly divergent across the country. And so I think what you're describing there, Kevin, is certainly true, but I think it's going to be a little bit more likely to be in the reverse, meaning um, it's one thing for, say, a wealthy liberal who supports abortion rights significantly, but is not planning to get one. It's one thing for them to say, I'm leaving a red state that doesn't allow anybody to get an abortion. It's another thing for somebody who is fervently pro-life to live in Illinois or New York or California, which I would have to imagine are going to move toward complete full funding for abortions all the way through nine months. Mm-hmm. I would, I mean, I, am I wrong on that? I don't want to say something that's, that's foolish or or unfair. It just seems I would imagine the response from the bluest states at the very least is going to be a dramatic increase. A dramatic, in, yeah. In, in, in access, especially through financial means uh, for that. Now, of course, the federal government is currently still banned from funding abortions through federal programs. And a lot of those federal programs are what a lot of um, poor women would be using in this case, or the, the medical care that they'd be on. But I would have to imagine the major blue states are going to to throw significant financial resources directly from the taxpayers into funding abortions At and also it, probably an encouragement to cross borders that's as right. well. So I would imagine if you're in Illinois, you're going to be setting up shop right down there on that Indiana border. And you're also going to I mean, Wisconsin maybe may or may not enact some restrictions, um, but I was, especially in Indiana, wouldn't you guys think? I mean, Kevin, that's your old territory. Yeah, and I think there will be a real incentive for blue states politically, uh, if Roe falls, to want to signal to their constituents or at least their base voters, hey, we're not going to take this lying down as they see it. We're going to do something. And so we're going to signal as loudly as we can. Some of it will be just tokens and some of it will be real significant. But I think you're right. It will be funding, it will be access, it will be, you know, you might see national 
or statewide ab- abortion holidays. I mean, I don't think it's un. They would call it something else, but I mean, they would call it Reproductive Freedom Day or yeah. Abortion Rights Day. You, you are you're going to see that now. Not to get too much in the political punditry, but I think on either side, if people think this will be the galvanizing issue come midterms, November is a long time away politically, a long time away, and I think that economic factors almost always for most people right or wrong override other sorts of factors. So I, I don't know, do you guys disagree? I don't see this being an issue that, that changes the calculus that's already in place for the midterm elections. Do you? The only thing I'd say otherwise, I'm interested to get Justin's take on this is that if you do have open season on state legislation, then that is going to dominate, especially if there are special sessions that are called. I know South Dakota, uh, my old home state, said that they'll call a special a special so session. State legislature, yeah, state legislature will call U.S. Congress. No, they'll call one immediately uh, to to ban abortion. In that case, they'd be one of the states that I think would be definitely on the cons- most conservative end of the spectrum when it comes to that. So you may have quite a massive summer story of all the different uh, things that are being that are being proposed and keep in mind there wasn't a lot of coverage or strategy or unity among the more conservative side on this topic of what would happen because i mean a lot of people felt certainly like i did in 2016 about around that era before the election it just felt like this was impossible and so it was kind of a unifying force for republicans you could pass whatever you wanted but it wouldn't go anywhere it wouldn't happen so right. now you're going to have open season on all kinds of different legislation, and it's going to be different in Kentucky than it is in West Virginia, than it is in Alabama, which it is in Mississippi. And journalistically, that's going to be a huge story, and every one of them is going to be nationalized. So if that happens, Kevin, that would be that would actually displace some of the economic concerns overall. Um, and, and state legis- a lot of people do not realize how much more conservative state legislatures have become, especially since President Obama's um, uh, tenure. Sorry, Justin, go ahead. No, I don't necessarily have anything to add on the horse race part of things. So, uh, you know, w- going back to whether people be moving states, it is so expensive to move to another part of the country um, unless your job is requiring you to move. So I, I wonder if people getting to retirement age or snowbirds who have a choice between two states, if that might be a factor. But uh, I think my instincts are like Kevin. It's the sort of thing people might say, but uh, are you so exercised about it that you'll literally pick up and you know, leave your job and leave your family and leave your community to go to move to right. another state? Probably not. As it likely. just, it just seems as though the, the sorting, the geographic sorting has been following a pretty clear trend for quite a bit of time, which is that, Higher educated liberals tend to be congregating in cities and especially coastal cities. And then people who are looking for more freedom, low taxes, there was a radical shift prompted by COVID there. And so I could imagine that, I mean, the only, the only way that makes it less expensive to move is if you're moving to a much less expensive place right. <laughs> in that case. So I, I would more likely see it moving one direction, blue to red, than I would see red to blue. So here's just continuing with this abortion discussion, and, and we can circle back to you, Colin, or Justin, if you have your bullet points. But just uh, th- three thoughts related to this whole discussion in Roe v. Wade. Number one, 
uh, you know, it's, it's not time to do a victory lap for sure. And we don't know what's, what's happening, but there is something to be said positively for 50 years of, you know, some people will say who don't, who are really don't want to see this change as if they're revealing some secret. Do you know that people have been working for 50 years to overturn? Yes. That's, I think that's been very open and certainly we can't, you know, just, well, yay evangelicals. We know that evangelicals weren't the first ones to this, although some of that historiography is, is sometimes misguided, but certainly lots of Catholics and other religious people. But it, it does show, I think, the, the possibility, but also the limitations of cultural change. By that, I mean 50 years is a long time to be focused on something. And it it took, if it works, um, by God's grace, I mean, it's it's a jurisprudence issue. It takes certain, I mean, elections have consequences, certain kind of judicial philosophy, because quite apart from the, the, the moral turpitude of abortion, virtually everyone agrees that Roe as a constitutional case was without <laughs> any sort of legal founding or consistency. So I think it shows uh, a 50-year, of course you didn't know it would take 50-year plan. So that's good. The limitation, however, is it is the sort of thing, now there's many facets to it, but it's easier to, to look at, okay, here's a case to overturn. There's a There's a specific thing. And it's harder to... I, I hope that, and I think this will be true, but I hope that those who see the good that will be if Roe is overturned uh, keep saying, well, there's much more to do to work on hearts and minds and care for people. And I, I think that will happen, but it shows the, the the benefit and also the limitations of just, okay, there's one specific thing. And I think when there's that sort of goal, it can you know, by God's grace in 50 years, you know, we shouldn't think that good things can't happen. I think there is a tendency among conservatives to just assume everything always gets worse and everyone is always against us. Nothing ever works. And that's not helpful. A second thought, uh, you know, I think I, I mentioned to you guys, you know, on a text thread, this book, I just remembered it. Jeffrey Bell it came out 10 years ago. And uh, so he's a conservative, and it's called The Case for Polarized Politics. And I don't know if you could write that title today, and, and I certainly agree with all, you know, there's lots of reasons to critique polarization in the church and political partisanship being more important to people than theological fidelity. All of those things are very real dangers. What I recall from the book, in very general terms, though, you know, the subtitle is Why America Needs Social Conservatism. And his basic argument was, okay, this, this is my Kevin DeYoung 10 years later, so apologies if I'm not getting it right. But, okay, you have a polarized American politics. And one of the main reasons is because you have social conservatism. You know how you cannot? There's, there's a few real easy ways to not have polarized politics. Right. One is everyone agrees that abortion is wrong. The other is no viable 
political candidate or party ever really talks about that abortion is wrong. So, I mean, you talk to Christian friends in the UK and they'll say, this just doesn't show up as a major issue. It doesn't divide clearly along political lines. And on the one hand, you can say, well, that must be nice that they don't have the same political polarization. They don't have just two parties. And, and yet, if the answer, if the antidote to political polarization is nobody stands up for the, the life of the unborn, then I'll take polarization. So part of the reason we have polarization is, uh, you know, you can debate whether everyone is sincere in it, but it's just the fact that one political party has made it a plank in their platform. And increasingly, the other political party, as Justin's pointed out online, has moved away from safe, legal, and rare, the, the Clinton line, to celebrating. I mean, to share your abortion story. This is such a, a good. Well, that that issue in itself doesn't account for everything. And it's a counterfactual to try to imagine, well, what if that wasn't the case? But it is the case. And as much as political polarization is a real danger, and it is, I think we have to remember that one of the reasons we have it is because we can be thankful that not everyone has capitulated on abortion when in many places they might. And then the third point, and I'll see what you want to say, Colin. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys share my frustration in this. I think you do. But anytime this comes up, you know, a, abortion and it quickly, it gets thrown back. Well, you know, y- you evangelicals, you're, you're pro-life until they're born. And then you don't do anything. And what we really need to do is if you're really consistently pro-life, it's womb to tomb. And in fact, people wouldn't be having abortions if you didn't, uh, if you did more to change the circumstances and structures that lead to abortion. That argument gets very stale to me. Not that there's nothing to, to learn from it, but on, on, on two fronts, one, it's just simply not true that after birth, Christians don't do it. Christians, by any measure, give the most, they provide the most, they adopt the most. So it's just not true to say that Christians aren't the ones caring. And then on the other end, uh, that argument equates certain political programs or givens on the left as the only way that you genuinely care for people. And that's a debate that that Christians can have, but the assumption is just so often, you're not for this particular program, therefore you're not really doing anything to address the problem. So I, I, I find it at this moment where there's something perhaps very, very good to happen. It's almost like, you know, Christians can't ever take, you know, good news need to somehow turn it back on this is something really we there's still something really bad that we we need to self-flagellate for and it's it's frustrating and i don't think it's accurate or it's helpful colin what do you say you can hit on any of my three points or give your own bullet points well one thing shout out to my um shout out to my pastor isaac adams on this last sunday i just prayed unequivocally with thanks for at least what we see in the draft uh, decision, as well as praying for the, for the unborn. 
Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times it's kind of like what you said there, Kevin, about polarization. It's about politics in general, that there's a thought that we need we need less politics in the church. And I just don't I just don't think that's the case, meaning there are any number of ethical issues that are significantly important that God's word directly deals with that we have to work out in society as individuals together as a as a society and even as a church together. And so we we need I think we need more discipleship on political issues in our churches. Now we need less of it that is framed in a dominantly partisan direction. A lot of it is sort of handed down from a specific party uh, on both sides there. But you're exactly right, Kevin, that part of the confusion here comes. It's it's almost like um, you know, it's almost like there was a sexual revolution, but then the people who responded to the sexual revolution were somehow the people who started the culture war. And it's like, I mean, right. <laughs> I don't see how that's that's possible. It, it, I mean, the the position of arguing for the life of the child is not the new position. The right to be able to abort the child is the new position. So how is it that you have a problem right. of fighting? Why is it your fault for fighting back against something that's changed? And I know you can't you can't boil all the politics the last. 60 years down to that issue, but it's a significant factor. And I wrote about this in my um, piece for the Gospel Coalition, If Roe is Dead. There were no pro-life parties in 1973. Right. The Democrats were slightly more pro-life than Republicans, which will be interesting now that people go back and look at the books of which states had bans and which states didn't. It'll be surprising for a lot of them to realize that a lot of more Catholic states had bans, but that was at a time when Catholics were more aligned with each other on this topic, which they are not now any longer at, at, a, at an aggregate level. Um, but there were no pro-life parties in 1973. There was no obvious pro-life candidates for president. Now, um, now you had you had people who were kind of trying to work this out, but um, the fact that we've shifted from two pro-choice parties with pro-life minorities somewhere of varying sizes within them to at least one party that doesn't favor abortion on demand for any reason the entire time, I'll take that. I'm grateful for that. Um, now, I'll stop short of, of saying this. I mean, I do think Republicans are pro-life. Now, we'll see how much truth there is to them wanting to do this instead of being able to hide behind Roe all the time. So I'll, I'll still wait and see exactly how that works out, but it's positive. I think it's positive at, at the legislature level. And I'm also really grateful if this is true, that we finally got Republican justices who followed through after how many generations who failed us on that, uh, on that front. And we can thank president Trump and Senator, you know, you know yeah. Mitch McConnell and others for that, uh, for doing that. Uh, and the justices themselves, of course. But um, I, I mean, this is not an issue that I think church leaders can or should avoid. This is the most obvious candidate for an issue that we will look back, Lord willing, in future generations and believe was completely abhorrent, impossible, barbaric. And I'm not in any ways trying to minimize the real issues that that lead women 
um, to, to make this terrible decision. I'm just saying it's a terrible decision. And I don't think it's responsible for pastors to avoid talking about that. So I just want to give a, an appreciation to Isaac for praying about that. But then also we're the kind of church where our pastor is going to pray about a lot of different things and not only, and not only abortion and not only kind of quote unquote conservative partisan issues. Um, so I'm grateful for that. And I think, I hope, I hope a lot of churches did that this last Sunday. I think, yeah, I think we included did. it. I mean, I, I included it in our prayer and prayed that the, the draft opinion uh, would, would be the final opinion and that Roe would be overturned and prayed that we would continue to care for women in vulnerable positions and forgiveness for those who have had abortions and led others to have abortions, all of that. So, and, and I bet that's, that's not abnormal. That was probably the norm across evangelical churches across this country. And I, I know it, it can be loath to think of a single issue voter and, and to, to, as soon as you elevate one issue, it's like you're saying none of the other issues matter, and none of us would say that. There really is no other. I mean, it 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 comes down: is that a life? Is that a human person in the womb? The same genetic code that we all have. This there there's organically, biologically, what you're hearing and seeing. We are the same people. We're bigger uh, than we were, the same people we were, um, you know, at conception. And if that is a human person, then the human person is deserving of rights and deserving of life. And if we are killing those persons, they're as bad as other policies can be, whatever you think of them. Are they are they legally giving the right to kill people and then sell innocent people? Not by a, you know that shouldn't have happened. It should as bad as that. No, legally and then many people celebrating the fact that they did and they could and what a gift it is to humankind. I mean, when you really think about it, it is about as as bad as something gets, and so we should not apologize for being passionate about this issue and rejoicing if Roe is overturned and praying that the life of the unborn are protected in every way possible. Now, Scott Klusendorf uses a little technique in his training on pro-life issues called, he calls it trot out the toddler. And as a defeater to say like, what if it was toddlers that were being killed? I mean, can you imagine somebody saying, yeah, killing toddlers is, it's an important issue, but it's not the only issue. That's not the only thing you should think about when voting. Uh, I, th I think that even those of us who are pro-life don't always fully face the horror of what we're talking about. We are talking about killing a person, a human being, an innocent, defenseless child. It just so happens that that being in the womb somehow magically makes it different than killing a newborn, but functionally there's there's no difference between the two. And so I think if, you know, there was a movement in our country to kill everybody under the age of two, I mean, I think that would, like, how, how is this even a debate? But that's that's the reality. We believe that this is killing an innocent life. Yeah. Anything I think to it's add, also Colin? Worth, 
Yeah, go ahead, Justin. Just one more thought on the consistency issue, because that's going to be thrown back in our face all of the time. And it's, I think it's just worth thinking through how to respond to that. Is that true? Are we inconsistent? And I think one question to ask is, if I was 100% consistent on your definition, would you change your mind? Would you think differently about abortion? Would you think differently about me? And I think a lot of times it's a smoke screen that somebody throws up. But I, I was also helped years ago by Scott Klusendorf saying, okay, maybe I'm inconsistent. Uh, doesn't mean I'm wrong about the life of the unborn or that that should be uh, illegal. So maybe I'm inconsistent, but I still can be right and inconsistent on one of those two. And then as you were pointing out, Kevin, functionally, uh, by and large, pro-life Christians are not inconsistent, whether you're talking about crisis pregnancy or supporting mothers. We might not support governmental intervention to the same degree, but Christians and pro-life Christians and conservative Christians are on the ground helping uh, in starting adoption agencies and uh, adopt more frequently and uh, support mothers. And yet there's, there's more that we can do. We shouldn't we shouldn't bristle against that. We should be moving towards women in need and uh, children who need placement and adoptions. Yeah. You know, philosophically, it's, it's, this distinction has been lost on everyone, but it was very important in the history of development of natural law and political theory, the difference between positive rights and negative rights. They get called different things, but you know, you, you, there's a difference between somebody saying, you know, education is a human right or healthcare is a human right. That, that means somebody has to do something for you. And I, okay, people can make that case, but a, a negative right is uh, you cannot do something to me. So it's, it's, it's much different to say we are advocating that this person has a right to live. You should not kill this person. Okay. Well then are you providing them meals? Are you providing them healthcare? That's a different kind of right. And at least the tradition leading to the founding of our country distinguished between those kind of rights, which goes back to Puffendorf and all of these natural law theorists. And so often we just because rights is a very, you know, Americans, you know, don't want to be against rights generally that gets thrown out there, but they're very different kinds of rights. And I think to your point, Justin, uh, of course, you know, we, we want to think about how we can care for one another better, but really, you know, if, if you were to be, uh, an at risk mom, a, a, a single mother, you know, where could you most immediately find a group of people who would want to help you? I think it would be in a church. Of course, the church is going to make mistakes, and the church is going to yeah, all all those important things. But but really, I mean, just look right now, Af uh, Afghan refugee resettlements. I don't have hard numbers, but I just have to imagine where that's happening is overwhelmingly in churches, or maybe more broadly in religious groups and religious communities, like like our church is sponsoring, you know, an Afghan family and providing house and housing and all of these things for people. Churches do this kind of stuff all the time. 
and care for for people all the time. And so I I don't I don't think we it, the instinct to want to be humble and acknowledge our failures is is good, but not when the failures are exaggerated or they're the sort of failures that are endemic to just to, to human finitude and limitations uh, rather than what's actually happening compared. So if the standard is what are you doing compared to everything you could be doing or what are you doing compared to what other sorts of people are doing? Those are two very different comparisons. Yeah. Anything to add before we move on from this, yeah, Colin? Quick, <clears throat> quick thought on this one. I don't know if you guys read that, that really amazing Ringer essay from Jonathan Charks, um, Does My Son Know You, about the, about the church. And I was thinking about that lately with all this time I'm spending with all these other baseball families. And you get to know people and really love and appreciate people, become fast friends just by spending time with them, which I think is the point. But then Jonathan points out that that's all well and good until you're dying of cancer and you need somebody to help watch your wife and your child grow up for the next 15 years. Then who are you going to, then who are you going to call? It's not going to be your baseball friends. Um, it's going to need to be a church. Um, and we, I think that can be something that's, that's missed even in people who are, missing even Christians who are missing church to be able to do these other things. And so when you talk about Afghan refugees or you talk about a woman in need, one of the reasons why you think of a church is not only because hopefully we're living out Christ's commands, but also because it's one of the only social institutions that's left that actually provides and brings people together in these ways. You can find government agencies do a lot of different things, a lot of different social clubs, when it comes down to people who are going to be good to help each other just for the sake of doing that, you're going to depend on churches just the way we've always depended on churches to do that kind of thing and why government's never going to be a, a replacement for that. And so if the effect of all of this is that there's more debate about abortion, there is there are more churches that are stepping up in different environments to handle different circumstances because it's a more pressing issue upon them as a result of this then then bring it on let's let's be that let's be that example following Christ to and i and i have i've got my disagree i've got my discouragements about the church in a lot of different ways but to your point kevin i think this is something i think there's something we can do and I don't find many people who would disagree across the spectrum on what to do. And maybe that is different from previous generations. I'm not sure. But I can only speak for this generation. And I'm pretty sure you're not going to find many churches that wouldn't be willing to help. However Good word. they can. Good word. Let's finish by doing books, the life and books and everything. We love books. Uh, I want to mention here... Uh, we have a second sponsor for today, the Westminster Bookstore. All of us have benefited from going to their website, and they often have, they work really hard to have the best deals out there and to really think about the books that they're putting out there. So this is a not-for-profit ministry of Westminster Theological Seminary dedicated to serving the church with biblically faithful, theologically robust, pastorally relevant books from kids all the way up through pastors. 
So if you want commentaries, if you're a new believer, a young parent, WTSbooks.com. WTSbooks.com. As a special offer for LBE listeners, you can get 50% off the newly released nice. Biggest Story Bible Storybook <laughs> Book of Stories about the Bible's Story Book. So visit... Unofficial who, title. Yeah. Who <laughs> titled that thing? Nobody, I blame the publisher and Nobody the on here is responsible for that. Uh, WTSbooks.com slash Biggest Story, and the discount will automatically apply at checkout. So thankful for them. I know Crossways worked with them on a lot of books and they really do a great job of putting good stuff out there at the best prices that they possibly can. So books, what books are you men reading right now? I, I started last year. This has been helpful. I am keeping this little journal and I write down when I finish a book. Otherwise I forget. Is it called goodreads.com? No, I use little nice, cool. Ah, uh. Okay. Leather little books. I'm an I am an, an old soul when it comes to that. I don't my books. When it comes I don't, to that or when it comes to everything. Everything. Except okay. I'm doing a podcast, I guess. But Talking yes, about books. I I I don't read I don't read books. I tried the Kindle thing. I just could not do it. I read hard books. I underline them. I write it down on a piece of paper here. So uh what books have you guys been reading? Give us however many you can do in mm, three minutes. All right, I can go. Justin. Uh, Matthew Continetti, The Right, The Hundred Year oh, War man. for American Conservatism. That is a page turner. Yeah, for you. It uh, is. I know. It is, it's very well written. It's a narrative history. It pulls together a lot of things, kind of goes back to uh, rather than saying, let's go back to uh, Buckley. Let's go back to the 1920s, and um, it's it's well written. It's not technical, but it's interesting. If you're even if you wouldn't call yourself a political conservative, I think it's interesting to try to to map uh, the last hundred years of uh, going from uh, Calvin Coolidge to Donald J. Trump. So uh, fascinating history, and uh, I'm maybe a quarter of the way through it. But uh, are you guys both reading it? Yeah, I'm about oh. half of the way through it, and it. I mean, there's so many. It it explains. It, it, whenever you read books like that, you just realize all of these things always have lots of infighting, and they're much. Mm -hmm. There's so many strands, and they're they're broader than you think, and and you see individual people's gifts come out. I mean, uh, you know, the more than half of the book is is really, you know, Buckley who had many really strong qualities and, and had to repudiate earlier views and got some things really wrong, especially on, on race early on. Uh, but you know, his charm, his charisma, his, his wealth, all of that, which held together this very diverse movement in these strands. So yeah, I'm about halfway through and it's really well-written. It makes me want to say when, when is, when is Colin or someone's going to do the, the the hundred year last hundred year history of I don't know reformed evangelicalism and all of its glories and messes. But I'm taking away from your time. But but Colin, did you answer Justin's question? Are you reading it? Uh, not yet. I'm waiting for you. I've got it. I know exactly where it is in my office. But I'm waiting for you, you guys to get it. through it. Well, 
I don't think I'm, I heard good things about it. Wow. And I'm, and I, the publisher kindly sent me a copy of it. Ben oh, wow. Sass, you are really yeah. in the know. I didn't. <laughs> ben Sass wrote a review, a national review that was, that was good. I think that must, you know, that, work. that's what I read. And that's yeah. when I asked the publisher for a copy. Okay, oh, nice. thanks for okay. reminding me. Uh, so you asked the publisher. Let's oh, yeah. Okay, let's <laughs> not, you know, too high and mighty. You had to well, ask they, the publisher. They kindly sent me one upon request. I don't see what the problem <laughs> is here. No, good for you. I bought it on Amazon. I'm feeling out 30 bucks now. <laughs> All right, so the second one, uh, sticking with kind of conservative history, uh, Watergate, A New History by Garrett Graff. Uh Garrett is kind of a younger guy, at least. He looks like our age or younger, so I, I still consider that. Really younger. young. Yeah, really younger, young. Younger guy. Uh, Super young. He did the oral history called The Plane of the Sky on 9-11, which oh, if yeah. you haven't gotten a hold of that, that's really worth. I would recommend listening to it on Audible because they have a lot of different actors. Which I did at your voices. recommendation yeah. last Was it year. A good recommendation? Oh, absolutely. Echoed, yeah. echoed for everybody out there. So you kind of think, what do you know? Fifty years later, what do we? Uh, why do we need anything new on Watergate? But he's uncovered, I think, some new things and put things together in a really interesting way. So I'm listening to that as well. Uh, the Tender Bar, um, a memoir by J.R. Moringer. I'm not sure if I'm saying that exactly correctly, but Pulitzer Prize-winning author writing a memoir, growing up in New York and. Um, He's very gifted. He ended up, I think uh, Andre Agassi read The Tender Bar when mm. he was uh, finishing up his tennis career and said, what would it be like to have my own story told through the eyes of a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author? So that's good. And then last on a more spiritual level, uh, I'm preaching this coming Sunday, which is a relatively rare event for me, but I'm going to preach on the Lord's Prayer. And so I am reading Kevin DeYoung's book on the Lord's Prayer, and Wesley Hill's got a little book on the Lord's Prayer. So those are um, really appreciating both of those and kind of priming the pump before preaching the Word. Thanks for writing that, Kevin. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I'm going to... Uh, I, I can't remember which books I've mentioned before, or but if I can't remember, you probably can't remember. <laughs> Just mention some uh, some common themes here. Donald J. Devine, The Enduring Tension, Capitalism and the Moral Order. So that was, that was good. A uh, meandering, I would say, defense of capitalism. Uh, David McCullough, I mentioned before, just finished the Wright Brothers book, but his book, The American Spirit, Who We Are and What We Stand For, is a collection of mostly commencement addresses and other occasions. Maybe I mentioned that. I just always enjoy reading him. So I have, uh, this is an interesting one, Harry Emerson Fosdick, Selected Sermons. Oh, boy. So, yeah, and I read, um, I, I power skimmed, I should say, his autobiography and read some of his biography. I, so I just finished writing an article for RTS's online journal. RTS is going to do uh, a, a journal dedicated to Fosdick. This was my suggestion, so you can blame me, <laughs> because the 100-year anniversary of his sermon is coming up in two weeks, the uh, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? So I thought, I asked Blair Smith and John Meather, that'd be interesting to reflect on liberalism, where was it, where is it, on Fosdick. So I wrote a, I don't know, 2,000-word article on Fosdick and on that sermon. Is it titled The Fosdick Flop? <laughs> the, yes, the uh, that what that is, I should do that. 
another track and field reference. Appreciate that. <laughs> okay. Uh, what I read a bunch of covenant theology books for my class. I won't mention that. Oh, Stephen B. Clark, Man and Woman in Christ. So this is a book from 1980. And a lot of you, I bet hardly anyone has read it, but you've read people who are very influenced by it. So Grudem, a lot of the CBMW folks were very influenced, I think, by Stephen Clark's book. It's been republished last year. It's like 750 pages. So he's now in his 80s. He's Catholic. Can't really tell, you know, what, other than he's a Christian commitment in the book. But it's it's what's unique. It's like half going through the text, typical complementarian take on text. Uh, but very readable. And then the second half is through social science and does some history. So that was a big book. And uh, I, I was surprised. I thought, I, I've heard of this and I haven't read it before. It was very good. Matthew I'm surprised Hennessy. it's that big. I've always heard big. about it, but I just assumed it's you know old paperback book. back. No, it was a real big book. Matthew Hennessy, Visible Hand, A Wealth of Nations, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market. So he's a Wall Street Journal uh, works with the the editorial page and another book on capitalism. And then finally, Dale Alquist, The Story of the Family, G.K. Chesterton and the Only State That Creates and Loves Its Own Citizens, which is a line from Chesterton. So Alquist is really one of the world's experts on Chesterton. And this is a book pulling together Chesterton. Sometimes it's little quotes. He's so quotable. And then other times it's parts of essays. So it's not just a compendium of, of little sentences. It's sections from essays and books on the family and divided into, you know, family and education, family and birth control, family and economics. And it was really fascinating. Uh, don't agree with everything Chesterton says, but he's so fun to read and uh, very insightful and very prescient in many of the things that he's writing about. So uh, some of my hobby reading right now has been on the family in that book uh, edited by Elquist, but basically Chesterton on the family just came out. It was really good. Colin, take us home. What have you been reading? Obscure Russian <laughs> books of poetry, no doubt. Uh Saving that for the fall. Um, okay. So, hey, my my uh, Trisha, yeah, my wife yeah. read, and I didn't, but she read Gentleman in Moscow, and loved it. Loved okay, it. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Have thank you read? You. I just I got her for her birthday his book on the Lincoln, Lincoln Highway. Highway. Did you read it? Did read it. Didn't love it as much, but it's uh, okay. on my list of one I just read. I don't. I mean, it, it is a. It's an interesting Slow. book with. What did you not like? Slow it? book. Slow. Oh, slow. Well, it, no. it, it is. Well, like, it it's, Nebraska like, in it? it's like traveling through Nebraska. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll there eventually, no, but. traveling to Nebraska, you can go 85. That's it's, fast. It's one of the, it's one of those classic books that has all these different threads that only kind of come together. Uh, in right. the end. It's told from multiple perspectives yeah. over a 10 day period. Yeah. I did the audiobook version of okay. it, but, um, so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, when I used to work at Christianity Today, we'd get all these letters from for Philip Yancey. I was not a Philip Yancey reader. I read his memoir, Where the Light Fell, and wow, that was eye-opening. That was a page-turner. Um, I was really wanting to know about somebody about that age, that period of, of life, of what it was like to grow up as one of those uh, kind of boomer Christians, fundamentalists in the Deep South. And wow, that was horrifying, sad, 
strange all so at what once. happened to him was horrifying yeah well and his and his brother his dad i mean died of polio when he was um did you say in some way he never i mean he's never gotten over it and that's, well i mean i think it's very it, i mean the, the memoir explains yeah. I, I just if you're a philip yancey yeah. fan Go ahead. His dad not only died of polio, but refused to take the vaccine because he was kind of into faith healing. Well, so it was, was like in his twenties, right? Yeah, early twenties. I can't remember about the vaccine part of it, but part of the story was that he was yeah. in an iron lung right. and essentially had no quality of life. And they decided to go off the iron lung so that he could, you know, he was planning to be a missionary, all that sort of stuff. His Mother then, you know, so the, he goes off the iron lung and they pray and they kind of celebrate and then he and he dies. Um, I mean, it's just it is just sad. But what's so interesting is that for for us who are in the Gen X to elder millennial category, it's just it's we didn't grow up understanding. We did not grow up with that sort of we, polio was not a part of our lives. As a, as a one clear example of that. And I don't, none of us had that kind of exposure to fundamentalism. Our exposure is to the main line. Um, and so it just, and, and not the South, but the Midwest. So fascinating as a memoir, just taking me into a really different world mm. educationally and otherwise. And it is, it is a page turner as well. Um, now uh, it was a recommendation from my friend, uh, Victor had been reading through it. Uh, my summer reading I've set up, so I decided um, we should do an episode at some point of book that everybody assumes that you've read, but you haven't. That would be an oh, interesting yeah. topic. So two of them. That has to be a few episodes for Justin. <laughs> that's, that's right. So for me, two books that I, I need to read, especially for my apologetics lecturing and uh, stuff like that. I've never read The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright or Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, The Gospel is Eyewitness Testimony by Richard Baucom. So feels like I reference them all the time or I read people who reference them all the time. So I'm actually reading them now. Um, also got in there um, for summer reading, uh, Jonathan Linebaugh's The Word of the Cross, reading Paul in part because um, Linebaugh's leaving Cambridge to come teach at Beeson um, where I serve starting in the fall. And that, there he's got, uh, Justin's got yeah. it right there. All right. So we're excited for him to, to join. And then uh, I also... I assume you guys have either seen this or read it. I mean, I think maybe Kevin, you referenced it, but the new Zwingli book by Bruce mm-hmm. Gordon, Zwingli yes. God's armed prophet. I'm just going to be a sucker for reformation era biographies and especially Bruce Gordon after I love his Calvin uh, books. And I don't know much about Zwingli or really about the Swiss reformation at all pre Calvin. So, um, so that's, I mean, I, I, it's it's not really a page turner at this point, but I'm guessing it's no. gonna it's gonna pick up. I hope. No, Kevin. I mean, yeah, it's an academic book. Um, just cross reference uh, a podcast. Uh, you know, Al Mohler, Thinking in Public, right. yep. did a, a nice conversation with Bruce Gordon on Zwingli, and yeah, I mean, I of course I've heard of Zwingli f- forever, and right. you know, but really. You, at least from our perspective, you, you tend to learn a few paragraphs about Zwingli and then Calvin and Luther, and boy, he had an interesting life. Well, and, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. You, you see him through the eyes of Luther as his yeah. opponent, uh, as a contemporary. He depends on Luther, and then as his opponent uh, with Marburg, Marburg, yeah. and then and then you, Calvin is sort of just kind of takes over and dominates the Swiss Reformation. But yeah. I mean, the, those first generation reformers just remarkable. 
Uh, <laughs> and uh, the last one, this is this is the obligatory uh, uh, Colin book in here. It is John Madison's A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. That is a, a page turner. This is a good Are you historical. Reading that to your kid? Yeah, well, yeah. I have at least one child who wouldn't mind it, but um, <laughs> just finished. It's a bunch of mini biographies of people who uh, kind of leading up to their lives were changed by the Battle of Fredericksburg. And so it just got done with an abolitionist chaplain from a famous Boston family and all of kind of his experience of processing this as a Christian crusade, essentially. And then next, going into one of the author's specialties, which is Louisa May Alcott. Um, and so it's just, so it's, I mean, I love the period, obviously, but it's a good thing when you're in your wheelhouse and you're reading something you don't, reading something new, or that's written so compellingly that you're just really having a fun time with it. So um, really enjoying A Worse Place. And Madison is a former Pulitzer Prize uh, historian, I think on Louisa May Alcott. Uh, may Alcott, if I remember correctly. Um, but um, so that's my summer reading list coming up. All right, gentlemen, wonderful to be with you. Uh, Colin, I'll have to see you. I, I don't know when, I mean, I'll talk to you, but if we don't have a podcast, I'll be in Birmingham. Coming to Birmingham. For come, Presbyterians come near and far. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna take over that Baptist enclave for... <laughs> Uh, a few days in June. So ho- <laughs> hope to see you there in your fair city. Maybe catch a Barons game. Actually, we won't. There's no time for anything. Well, or, or just go across the street and watch the USFL. Birmingham, oh, yeah. The exclusive home of the USFL this season. I saw a game on last night, and it there seemed to be fans numbering in the... Dozens. You need to you need to watch the Saturday night games, which is when the Birmingham Stallions play, and that's, okay. that's when people turn out. But considering every single game in the entire league is in Birmingham, we yeah. can't go to all of them, Kevin. <laughs> well, let me just bookend this fabulous podcast by ending now with sports banter. So this summer, here's what I'm so excited about. I bought these tickets the, like the first hour they came out, and I'm taking my two oldest sons to Eugene, Oregon, Hayward Field, and uh, seeing the track and field world championships. Nice. Okay, can I get it? Yes. I hear the oohs and ahs. <laughs> I love it. This is, this is the first time that the track and field world championships have ever been in the United States. They were supposed to be last year. Everything got pushed back for COVID. They're at University of Oregon in the, the mecca oh. of sports running. I've actually, Nike Oregon's dome. one of like three or four states I've never been to. Sorry, Oregonians or however you say it. I know <laughs> not to say Oregon. <laughs> I did have a, a friend in seminary who uh, he was he would get on me if I said Oregon. And he said, it's not <laughs> Oregon. So I said, okay, well, I, I'm not from there. And he said, well, you should know. And I said, well, how do you pronounce that bridge in oh, Michigan no. that connects oh, the no. upper and lower. Oh, Is no. it the Mackinac? I said, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you okay. got him, Kevin. I sure did. I've now I've lived to tell the tale. So I'm excited for that. I am a sucker. I could watch track meets all day. They're so exciting. People running in circles. 
This is the guy faster. who said baseball was boring earlier. Yeah, well, there's there's not enough running. Well, it lasts longer. That's the yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's that's maybe we'll have a summer catch up podcast at some point. So good to be with you, men. Um, blessings and thank you to everyone for sticking with us all the way through the end. Until next time, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book. 